1: Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert.
2: Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. It is a pleasure to be back with you live after a little bit of uh, of a break, Uh, and I'm very excited about the show today. Over the last, uh, oh, 10, 13 weeks, uh, we've had guess that I would say we've been looking at museums from the inside out. We've uh, talked about museums uh, and their promise and their value as gathering places, as agents of social change, and as unique educational uh, uh, opportunities to practice the skills that we really need for the 21st century. But, of course, museums are also very practical organizations that have to worry about the bottom line, just like any other company, uh, making sure that there's enough money to pay the electric bill and and, uh, uh, take care of the staff and, of course, care for the collections. And sometimes uh, when we think about museums in this Uh, entrepreneurial or or business way, Uh, museums can get sort of tripped up between what's their, what's the practical aspects that they have to deal with and what's their mission. and being true to both of those things. So to help us sort of sort out those distinctions and uh, uh, help us understand how museums really can be uh, sustaining themselves uh, into the future, we have a wonderful guest today. Stephen Brand uh, is a contract director of programs and marketing at the Creative Education Foundation and also adjunct associate professor of entrepreneurship at all Inc. College of Engineering. Now, Stephen has been an executive and consultant uh, for quite a few years, working for both uh, nonprofit and for profit organizations. Stephen really does bring an entrepreneurial spirit to his work, and he also, in addition to all of his uh, Experience. He also holds a doctorate of management from Weatherhead School of Management, Case Western Reserve University. And I feel that, and I hope we have an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about his doctoral research, which explored the development, uh, the early development, and personal characteristics that led to the success of corporate engineers and inventors. So, Stephen, welcome to the show today.
3: Hi, Carol. It's good to hear from you. Nice to be here.
2: Stephen, I've I've only scratched the surface of uh, your experience and the organizations that you've worked with. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself in your own words and help us understand uh, what has driven your practice over the last uh,
3: years? Um, you've done it all. It's gone.
2: The show's <laughs> over. No.
3: Um, I, you know, I think that my life has been, uh, my professional life has been this um, overlap of um, education, because I do have a master's in education, um, sort of technology and media, or you know, I look at it as sort of embedded in experience development um, in physical space as well as online. And the third one is business and entrepreneurship. I have this passion for helping nonprofits and especially museum world to really understand that they have to be mission driven but they also have to be market driven because they could spend their lives being mission driven all the time and have no one in their buildings and no one engaging them. But if they think of themselves to understand the needs and the desires of people, then they'll actually have people who want to engage it and are excited about the content that they have. But they have to really embrace both of those mission-driven revenue. And I've done – my background, I've done everything from museums um, to schools um, and to um, – actually, I'm working on this really cool project right now um, – for the Jim Henson company who created the Muppets. And, um, and if you remember the Rock show, the little doozer guys, the green guys are used to be builders. They used to build s- structures out of radish sticks and now they're um, inventors and problem solvers. So instead of doing business for them, I'm focusing with uh, that organization, helping them build environments, characters, names of characters, scripts, and I've helped them on their first year of the series. So this sort of like this connection between education and business and innovation and invention sort of all coming together with a very, very exciting career and a very eclectic group of uh, clients.
2: Uh, that's wow. Wow. Uh, that's so very exciting. You know, a couple of weeks ago we had uh, Gretchen, um, Uh, Jennings on the show she has coined this term empathetic, uh, as a way of, you know, museums are so very different and they're so eclectic in their own way. And so sometimes it's, it's interesting to talk about them, uh, giving them sort of a persona. Uh, and so she was looking at it again from the inside out, uh, looking at this idea of empathy. Museums need to, uh, think about their, their visitors and be empathetic to their needs. Uh, it, it occurs to me that what you're doing is looking at museums a little bit from the outside in, although you, you have your museum credentials uh, with uh, Liberty Science Center and, and other organizations. Um, but would it be fair to say that museums can be entrepreneurial or entrepreneurs?
3: They don't have a choice. I mean, the, um, the, the days of huge endowments and just sitting on money and doing the eclectic thing without thinking about people is really gone. Um, and um, I think that you know museums, whether you're a history museum or an art museum or a science center, to really – you have to be extremely empathetic, but not just empathetic about how people think and feel, and that's very important, but how they behave. So, on, a, you know, I, I remember when I was uh, vice president of Liberty Science Center, I always turned to the staff and I said, who's our competition? And we use that word kind of. And I know some people like don't like those business. words, But who's our competition? And they're saying, well, it's the Newark Museum and it's the museum in New York and this and that. I'm like, no, it's a shopping mall on a Saturday morning when families get up and they have to decide what to do. You're being compared against movies, shopping mall." and museum experience. And if you don't think of yourself to understand that and get kids so excited about coming to you, at least from the family standpoint, then you're not making the right decisions because you're only focusing on who you are. Um, so I, I think you've got to really, you, you've got to be entrepreneurial or else because the money is very different than it was, you know, 50 years ago. It is much more uh, market driven, but I think that's an exciting, I think that's actually very exciting. It makes us more relevant and it also makes us more um, engaging um, as opposed to, Just taking some world class experts in a particular field and let them sort of be there to share their what they get excited about in their narrow niche of something they did their doctorate in. And I think that gives us uh, some very interesting opportunities to really inspire the world um, from an educational standpoint.
2: Well, you know. Steve, to some uh, some of our listeners and some of our museum colleagues, comparing a museum to a shopping mall—well, those are fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I no I, I but in all seriousness, I think that we have to get over ourselves, and we need to realize that uh, people have so many options uh, in terms of you know of of what they do with their time um, and that we are just one of those many options so how do so the question to me i would think is how do museums become that most important thing or you know at least within the top three
3: right uh well actually i just i want to comment on something you said before let's look at the public television world if you look at the the, like pbs and if you look at the learning channel the learning channels a business Um, pbs is a supported nonprofit. And the question is, when you compare those, how can one exist and the other exist kind of with the same mission, um, but um, really not focusing on the same business model? I mean, although if you look at PBS, I mean, the fact that Downton Abbey is now this huge craze is tapped into some imagination of the public um, about you know what life was like in, in that world from many different angles. And that was a great example of being entrepreneurial because believe it, they're making a lot of money on doubt Abbey. So I, I want to get over that, but you know, I look at this, I, I look at in my, in my consulting and my professional life, I look at assets of an organization. Um, I look at, you know, it's funny. I did some consulting for the Oakland museum in California and their challenges. They're across the street from millions and millions of tourists. And the tourists are, going to the exploratorium, they're, they're going to the harbor but the, from San Francisco, and they're not coming over to them. And so they've got to sit there and say, so what are our assets? What makes us valuable to the community? And although this is kind of a, 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 kind of a weird way to look at it, I started analyzing their assets. And I said, one thing you have is you've got this great building that's cheaper than a hotel. So imagine if school groups came to san francisco to experience san francisco imagine if you were the camping site the overnight program site so they come back over to oakland they hang out there they experience your exhibits and then they go over to san francisco the next day for the things that you'd expect them to do so i look at assets and also passion and the brand and i guess i use a lot of business words and i don't want to turn off museum people because i said oh he's just a business guy in a in a cloak of a nonprofit," you know whatever but you got to look at what's your brand. What do you represent? What do you care about? And how do you take that? Because there are a lot of business people making a lot of money with the with the sort of the ethic and the perspective of the museum world, but um, they are not museums. And how do you take what you've got that's so exciting? I mean, we know. I mean, um, we know um, some for-profit entities like Disney, and I'm I'm fascinated by Disney. But Disney, for some reason, thinks they can do museum exhibits. And we've seen in a number of examples is they don't get the museum and the sort of the non-profity part of it in some areas. Um, and that's the question is, how can you learn from Disney, but not be Disney? Because there's a, quite a difference. But um, so we need to, we've got that sort of that nuance and that understanding of content. And how do you make that come alive? You know, I, it's funny when, when I was um, in the museum, when I was working as a vice president or president, people always said, well, is this edutainment? And this is, You know, we've got to make a decision between market and mission. And I just totally discredit that because I think it's about mission driven content and experiences that excite people. And that if you want to call that market driven, that's fine with me. But I think we have so much exciting stuff to share with people that we need to step out and say, What's interesting about it, not that we care what we care about.
2: Well, wow! You've you've said so many um, really important and relevant things, uh, Stephen. I want to start to unpack some of those for for our listeners. One, why do well? Why don't we talk a, just a, a couple minutes more about uh, you know sort of the Disneyfication of of museums? Uh, you and I certainly went through a a phase within the you know museums' history where uh, uh, Disney was very interested in uh you know putting its toe into the museum market uh and and a lot of museum um, uh, people and museum marketing people went to uh some of the disney training but uh and we you know even at the museum uh american alliance for museums there there was disney why let's talk a little bit more about why that didn't work Seems like a partnership should have been made in heaven, but but neither group really understood each other, did they?
3: Well, because the the, the um, Disney's mission, and I don't have it in front of me, is to delight and you know entertain people. It's not to educate them and um, provide them content that is uh, rich in what and rich in, um, in, in you know deep in richness because it's content. And although Disney does that. I remember that project that was supposed to open up in Washington, which was American history um, that Disney was working on, which was an interesting piece. And, of course, let's face it, if you go to Disney, there's a lot of education. You go to Epcot, you can learn about all the presidents. Why would that not work? Because it's, it's kind of uh, – it's wonderful and there's a lot of content, but it's not deep. And what we have is we have this depth. You know, um, it's interesting. You go to the, the the Hall of the Presidents, and it's very interesting. And then you go on PBS and watch this new this show that I love, my wife and I love this, which is the Wives of Presidents because of the depth and the richness in content. And Disney is really just taking that thin layer of the top to excite you and pique your interest. And so I think we need to not get enamored by all of that. Um, I, I, so I, I think that – you know, I think – so let me give you an example. I went to one of those trainings at Disney – I went to the Disney customer service experience. But I'm always an by Disney. And the one thing that I learned was very powerful was how to exceed expectations. Where there's a one-hour line, they always tell you it's an hour and a half, and then people, you exceed their expectations. Where the museum business says they want to be authentic and accurate, they said, well, we think this is a half-hour line, and then it takes an hour and people in half. We had this with Liberty Science Center, we opened. And I if I wish I knew that then, because I would tell people, don't worry, it'll be soon, it'll be soon. What I should have said is, I know it's going to be an hour and a half, um, this is in our, like our opening day and I got in the press. Oh, it's not that bad and whatever, but you gotta like manage people's expectations because that's when they get frustrated. Um, but I'll get to the content after the break. I can get into more of the, the content issues around Disney versus museums and we can talk about that.
2: Well, I think that's great, and as Stephen said, uh, we're about to take a break, so uh, I think it's a good time to do that. Remember, you can join the conversation anytime, and you can always continue the conversation with me at uh, com. and uh, you also can... Uh, Uh, reach Stephen at sbrand at enterprisefactory.com. We'll be back in just a moment, uh, returning to the museum life, uh, with our very interesting discussion with Stephen Brand. Thank you. Talk,
4: talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
0: Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time.
1: You're tuned in to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
2: Good morning and welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. And today we've had, we have on our show Stephen Brand. Uh, and right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the uh, mixed uh, relationship uh, that the museum world has had uh, with Disney. Uh, museums tend to take on someone else's persona. And there was a time that they were taking on the, the uh, business persona of disney and then wondered why things weren't working out as well as they had hoped and uh so Stephen, you have a few more thoughts to share with us on that
3: well you know i think if you look at epcot which is a really probably the best example of education if you want to use that term um as opposed to some of the more magic kingdom or some of the other places and if you look at i mean some of them stuff are great i mean they're also they're really good at the the, they're not as good as interactivity. They're really good at the big show or immersing you in environments. And I think that museums, especially in the science museum world, are really big in, um, in interactivity. And so if you look at, you know, like the countries at Epcot are wonderful. You, we, we can't afford those kinds of storytelling. And they're really good at storytelling. They're about emotion. And I, the one thing I like about museums is the behind the scenes story that we could tell, but we don't always tell, which is when I go to an art museum and I see a piece of artwork, where my mind goes is not the artwork. It goes around what was in that room when that artwork is being created. What was down the street from that artist? What was the cafe where the artist went to hang out with other people? Those are the kind of stories that I think are very rich and engaging and would excite me if an art museum started telling those stories and not just this painting was done in this year this is, you know, this is what it is. Here's the, mater- I mean, there's a lot of other things going on that I think is like really cool. And so in history is the same. Don't tell me the story that I could read in school. Tell me the behind the scenes story in the history. That's what I like. And I think that's engaging and make it relevant to me, um, as opposed to just the story that everybody wants, thinks they know. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, that it's the richness of storytelling that we could learn a lot from Disney as well as operations.
2: Uh, well, great, and I I hope we can circle back around uh, uh, later on and 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 uh, unpack some of those ideas about how muse you know some new ways that museums could start telling their 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 broader story. But before we do that, Stephen, I I know that you have some really useful examples that our listeners will enjoy hearing about how you have taken some of the uh, museum Projects that you've been responsible for, and really move them from uh, okay or good programming, uh, good experiences to really great uh, experiences that are great in terms of both mission and market. And I was hoping you could share a couple of those with with us today.
3: Sure. We all know, at least in the science museum world, that IMAX has been huge. Um, uh, and although we got sort of sidestepped a little bit when commercials, theaters were showing IMAX. That being said, um, they were certainly a good money maker for the science museum industry. But we had at Liberty Science Center, we had this exhibit that our team invested sixteen thousand, I think sixteen one six thousand dollars in, which we were trying to teach about how the eyes work. How do the eyes work differently? The stereoscopic view of how eyes work, right? So it, we we invested in a 3D show. Um We hired a guy for $16,000, did a slideshow. Now, this is 3D, wasn't as big as it is now, but it was $16,000 for a show about the 3D show. And so you'd be sitting there and there'd be giraffe noses in your face and there'd be, you know, spears in your face and all that kind of stuff. It was, I don't remember how long it was, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and people loved it, right? We always had a line that was two shows long. So we had a line that was, you know, maybe a, a 40 minutes long. Always, because 3D was kind of like interesting in those days. Um, So um, I went and it was free. and It was a little theater of 60 seats. And I went to the executive team and I said, I think we should bring it to the bigger theater because we had a 300-person theater that wasn't being used much. And why don't we charge – you know, why don't we charge a buck fifty for it? We're charging like I don't know five, six dollars for IMAX. Why not a buck fifty? And of course, all the business people were saying, "Oh, you can't nickel and dime people. It's really awful." And we went back and forth and debated, and I just kind of said, "I got some money in my budget. I'm going to do it." So I went out and bought a bigger screen, I bought some better um, lenses on the projectors, and we put it in this three hundred person theater. And for a place that was getting about a million visitors, and about seven hundred and fifty thousand people bought the buck and a half ticket to see the show um and it was unbelievable well if you do the math it's like one point i don't know two million bucks so we took that money and i went out and i had been in science north in uh canada and i saw that they had 3d lasers and it was done with 3d lasers and a 3d movie so i went to the company to it and i said i can't afford a 3d movie but why don't we do 3d lasers on a 3d show and he goes that sounds like a bad idea. I said, I got the money. I'll pay for it out of my one point whatever million. They produced it. And not only was it a huge success for us, but he, that company started selling it to that to museums around the world. So this little $16,000 investment about a really good content sort of moved into this almost an industry for these guys. Um, it, was, it was very exciting. So that's one example of how you sort of watch customer behavior or visitor behavior and say, there's something going on here. I hate to see lines; it drives me crazy. Some people say, "Oh, lines show you that you're really successful." I hate that, but let's give them what they want, and we did, and we generated a ton of money. Um, very exciting project. So
2: that sounds that sounds great. And again, uh, just to underscore it the the show had a lot of content and it oh. was very appropriate to uh the liberty science center you're talking about a uh, part of anatomy and eyes and perception and i and i remember seeing the show it was great i learned things that even i didn't know oh. uh in a very engaging way
3: so we actually had three shows we produced that one then we produced a new one and then we produced a third one so we actually was able to provide more content to our guests because we played the role of an entrepreneur. We were more entrepreneurial. So I could, you want me to tell you one more? I got another yes, story. Yes.
2: yes, I'd love to hear another story.
3: So I was president of the national inventors hall of fame in Akron. We were a startup museum. I got there about a year before we opened. And there was a, they, they, they started this summer camp called camp invention. It's a one week long summer day camp, um, mostly in the Akron region. And um, kids would pay 150 bucks. We did it in a school. We partnered with schools And um, it was very successful. It generated $100,000 a year, and we're opening this museum, and the chairman of the board said to me, Stephen, you got to close camp because it's getting in the way of opening the building. And my answer to him was, I'd rather make my money $160 at a time as opposed to five and a half bucks at a time. And in Akron, we're not going to get a million people coming to visit us. We're in Akron, Ohio, in the middle of nowhere. So what's exciting was I said, give me a couple of weeks, and I'll do an analysis, well, what I did is I uncovered, and this is camp is great. The reviews were unbelievable. Eighty-five percent to ninety percent of the people said they do it again. Strong curriculum, and so I went around and looked at our camps, and I noticed that one of our camps. Now, remember, there's a hundred kids in each camp. One of our camps in a very wealthy suburb, suburb was gener- netting three thousand dollars netting, and I'm like, wow! If I can net three thousand dollars for a, a content-rich experience to inspire invention and creativity in a, a a thousand communities. Now remember we were national. Then I got three hundred thousand dollars in net that I could pump it right back into the museum. Very interesting notion. So um I went back to the board and I said, I want to go national with this. And uh somewhat reluctantly <laughs> they, now you remember, pioneers of the <laughs> The the pioneers are the challenging ones because you've got to fight, you know, what people expect. So I basically, to make a long story short, in two years, we turned into like a three, three and a half million dollar business in 23 states. We sort of got it out there. We got the content out there. We created a business model because we partnered with schools and the schools actually sold it. And in many cases, the staff was all from the school. Um, and we basically marketed nationally, and we developed. You know, so if you were doing it, you'd be a camp director, and a truckload of materials would show up because we sourced it all and became very um, uh, operational about it. And we bought on bulk. We they got all the materials, they got a curriculum, we trained them in the curriculum, we did PR nationally, and lo and behold. Today, that program using the same business model we created is about a fifteen to sixteen million dollar business in fifty states reaching out to between eighty and ninety thousand children a summer. It's just unbelievable from this little thing that they said, maybe you should close it, Stephen. Um and the museum, by the way, those of you who know the museum, doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) But Camp Adventure does. Um so uh it's a very you just gotta you gotta keep your eyes open, you gotta scan what's going out there. It was a very it's a great success story, actually.
2: What I find interesting about that success, Stephen, is one, um, you know, I, I actually before our, our, uh, our talk today, I looked up the definition of entrepreneur, just, just for grins, and, and, you know, that it, it, uh, it says it's someone it man a person who is an entrepreneur manages a business or enterprise that usually has considerable risk and both of the stories that that you've just shared with us had had perceived risk you know per, perhaps perceived on on the on the uh a part of the board, uh, but it was, it seemed manageable. Now I know, you know, hindsight's always, it's easier to tell a story that was a success than, than, than was a failure, but it seemed to me that, that, uh, that's where many museums can get hung up. Um, so if a museum does not have someone like you with such a strength of character and passion and commitment to, you know, sort of come over, overcome some of these risk o- obstacles, what are some of the things that they might be able to, to do to, uh, you know, convince their board or convince their director that, that they should, uh, take on this, this little bit of risk?
3: It's actually, oh, I have a lot of, uh, I've got a lot of bone in the closet, believe me. I got some stories I could tell you about failure. So you're going to have failure. I mean, 90% of new businesses fail. Um, but I think that part of it is, I, I think museums should have a little new innovation fund, allowing people to sort of break out of the mold and try something new. Now, I, I will say there was a lot of risk professionally for me, because if I did this camp invention thing, and believe me, we had to invest a few hundred thousand dollars to get it where it was. I very easily could have lost my job, um, I, and I think with Liberty it was a little less so because I wasn't investing that much money. Um, but I mean, there have been projects I've, I've had uh, a number of pretty important projects that organizations invested in, and it didn't work. Um, you know, I, I was trying to sell. For example, I was working for WGBH, and I was trying to sell system for movie theaters to help people who were um, deaf go to the movies and it was a pretty expensive product. And in the end, even though the consumer wanted it, the theaters would only do it if they got sued. And after a year of trying to sell it, that's what I learned, that until ADA came in and said, you have to make this accessible, they're not going to do anything about it. So a lot of times you're fighting with a lot of different things. So, I mean, it's interesting when um, I'm a very, I'm an internal optimist, even though I'm kind of critical of a lot of things, I'm a real optimist. So when someone turns to me and they said, Stephen, I'm just playing devil's advocate. My only answer is the devil has enough advocate and doesn't need any more. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I and and actually to my uh, a fault of mine is when I was managing organizations and I just had these naysayers around the room. Let me give you an example. And the naysayers around the room, it just bogs down the visionaries. So I'm doing a project in the Anchorage Museum in a few weeks. And they asked me who should be coming to these, you know, these ideation revenue roadmap meeting. I said, any naysayers, let them out. I don't want them. I just want the people who are clamoring to get something done, who are excited about getting something done. Um, you know, the best ideas for museums and organizations come out in the exit interview because they say when they're leaving, they said – If you would have let me do these five things, we would be doing like really cool stuff. And so, uh, and I see so many people who are running their own companies who left museums who if they actually, the the organization let them try new things, they would actually be making money for the museum instead they're all running their own businesses, which is great. Um, there was a, you know, I mean, some really amazing stuff being done by people who basically left because they didn't fit into the mold. Um, so I think you gotta leave room for people who don't want to play the status quo game. And it's very hard for museums. Um, to give that kind of um, give it kind of room, you've got to give people room. You know, when you talk to um, when you learn about corporations and how they innovate, a lot of times they'll open up an office down the street and they'll say, stay away from the core and focus on the new. And then when you're sort of ready to get out there, then start introducing it and let test it. Um, and I, I think you got to be careful not to take people who are focusing on day to day activities and forcing them to do that when in reality. Um innovation and new ventures tend to be done in spare time when in some ways some people are really good at it. Um you gotta be careful about squelching people because that's what um because and also in classic, you know, my client, the Creative Education Foundation, invented brainstorming, well their founder, and one of the big rules that everybody breaks is deferred judgment because there's this incubation phase of ideas that if a meeting says, no, let's not try that, or we tried that five years ago and it didn't work, what you need to do is let ideas incubate and let and let them diverge out with 10, 20, 50, 60 ideas. And that's what I do with my client. We create, we do this analysis of their assets. We turn them into new business ideas. And once they're out there, we got 30 or 40, we then come up with a system that had to take those 60 ideas and narrow them down to two or three that actually launched. Um, but you can't defer judgment upfront because if you do, number one, you'll lose some of the best ideas because they're not good in the early phase, but they're good in incubation phase. Or two, you'll turn people off and they'll go look for a new jobs somewhere else, which happens a lot.
2: I think that is very, very interesting and uh, food for thought for all of all of our museums. Of course, uh, just you know, we museums are in another cycle of uh, tough economic times as you you mentioned uh, funding uh, some of the traditional funding sources have sort of dried up new funding sources have not necessarily materialized uh, uh, individuals have are a little more careful with their money these days and uh, maybe don't have the uh, money to take everybody to the aquarium or the zoo the way they did uh, did before and so it's you know it's always typical in these tough economic times for institutions to sort of hunker down and not do anything new. And certainly, uh, you know, the idea of releasing one or two individuals to do nothing, quote, nothing but sort of blue sky and think of new ideas uh, would be very challenging and and a little risky for new institutions. But it seems that what you're saying is that is exactly the, you know, now now is the time to be doing some of those things.
3: Right. And I think that, you know, in many ways, um, sometimes, you know, ideators, some people are good at ideating. Some people are good at developing ideas. Some people are really good at implementing ideas. And And I think you need to do is let the ideators ideate and then let the implementers implement and they can work together. But you need to figure that out because what happens is a lot of like executives want reports and if people don't write the right reports and the plans for the new ventures, they like say, well, we can't do that. So what you need to do is team people up with great ideas. Who've got great ideas with people who are good at operations and let them work together and build this vision. Where, no matter what museum it's going to be. I mean, whether it's a history museum or the art museum you know, and I think that, um, you know, there's so many, you know, there's so many things you could do. I mean, history is like this is so rich because it's such great with storytelling. Um, I think there's just so many great opportunities, but you got to give people the room to work and experiment and fail. You know, business, if you don't fail, then you're not ready to succeed. Fail. I mean, look, Thomas Edison invented 500 light bulbs that failed. If someone said to the beginning saying, do you sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, you're going to fail. And, 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 and executives need to have the intestinal fortitude to fail. Um, it's really important.
2: Yes. Yes. So, uh, and it's challenging, too, for museums that uh, are are directed by boards of trustees uh, who come from all walks of life, some of them from the corporate world, but many not. And the idea of uh, asking them to, uh, uh, to think about being entrepreneurial and taking some risk is always a little bit of a challenge. But I think that it is something, if museums are going to survive into the future, it's something that, that we as museums, Museum professionals, uh, both from the outside and from the inside, uh, need to be uh, engaging in those conversations a little bit more. And so with that, uh, I think we're going to take our our second break. Uh, I hope you return. Um, We're going to continue talking with Stephen a little bit uh, about uh, more of of how museums can embrace their entrepreneurial spirit and also some of the work that he is uh, currently doing to engage probably one of the um, least likely uh, entrepreneurial groups in the world, engineering. Uh, and how he is uh, moving engineering education uh, to a more entrepreneurial level. Uh, remember, you can always reach me at com. You can reach Stephen at sbrand at the enterprise. Uh, I'm sorry, sbrand at enterprisefactory.com. We'll be back in a, just a few minutes.
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people
1: that you want to hear about. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
4: Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787 and ask our All Star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866
2: 472
4: 5787. Thank you for
2: calling. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at Verizon Now back to Museum Life.
2: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I'm here today with Stephen Brand. We've been talking about how museums can embrace their inner entrepreneur and uh, also some examples of why that is not only important, it is essential in this uh Economic environment we find ourselves in, and you know, during the break, Stephen and I were having a rich conversation. I want to share a little bit of that with you, and that is, uh, as you, as my listeners know, uh, in my day job, I'm an interpretive planner. I develop museum exhibits uh, and educational programs, and uh, one of the things that Stephen uh, mentioned was that you know there are ideators, people who who live on the creative edge, and there are. People who are implementers, and it really is a part of their DNA. It's who they are. And ideators uh, sometimes don't make very good implementers because they forget the details. And, and implementers sometimes are always looking at the negative side and already trying to implement before that idea has really incubated. One of the challenges that we face in museums is the way, is that we have this team approach to museum exhibit development and. Museum museum program development and we throw a bunch of ideators and implementers into the same room together that because they're all stakeholders and then we expect them to come up with the new brand new idea uh, without really giving it its time for implementation. And so maybe this is something that as uh, museum professionals and, and as consultants we maybe need to look at a little little bit more. And Stephen you started to share with me some of the experiences that you had at the invention factory and how you organized your staff that really illustrate this well. So could you share that with us, please?
3: Yeah. So um, I, I got there and all management had their own offices and there were cubicles for everybody else. And it was a very like in a small staff, it was very kind of uh, bureaucratic in that way. So I got rid of all the cubicles. I had everybody share an office with someone else from a different department and in many cases, a different level I In the center area, which I called uh, downtown, I'm trying to think, I think that's what I called it, we had couches, chairs, whiteboards, and tables on wheels, so that space could sort of reconfigure, and you could pull people out of their offices if you had a question. And what I started seeing is, you know, educators who were sharing office with store people, and we started seeing the store thinking about um, what kind of products that will tie to the education program Instead of waiting for a meeting where we could discuss the strategy for the store, it was happening organically because they were hanging out with each other. Um, and uh, I, so I think that you've got to mix that up so that um, the different people are talking – and they're sharing an office. You get very close to people sharing an office with. And when they were different – you know, it's like I, I remember one of my managers said, well – I have to walk all the way across the office to talk to my staff. And I said, absolutely have fun. Enjoy the journey. You know, it's like, come on. You know, I was like, that's what you have to do. You got to interact. I mean, that came out of, I do a lot of reading of business stuff and that came out of my reading about 3M that when they started putting marketing people right next to engineers, they started developing products that actually were going to be attractive to the public and not just engineers, because engineers tend to be, um, totally, uh, uh, totally uh, enamored with their own sense of technology and not what people are going to spend money on so I, I think it 's kind of an interesting look at that
2: so stephen how how um how do you take an institution, perhaps, you know, one of your clients that, that sort of wants to put their toe into this entrepreneurial, uh, life and, or maybe they've just been forced uh, kicking and screaming because they've looked at their bottom line and it's not getting any better. How, how do you sort of move, move them from, you know, gee, I think I might want to do it to yes, I, I we're really committed. We're going to get we're we're going to move in a new direction.
3: Buy a, a subscription of fast company magazine. Uh, get them some book. So there's a, there's a book called lean startup, which is a great book by Eric rise. And what's great about it. It's a little bit less scary than developing a program and a product and throwing it out there, his approach. And it's mostly from the software world where you develop a product concept and throw it out to the world before it's done. So it, and it's a little scary for people who like button up things um, and then um, and then see how they behave with it, and then bring it back and redefine it so it works. It's kind of like a design thinking approach in some ways, which uh, was developed by IDEO and and done some work at Stanford. But this notion of how do you test ideas in not just uh, so if I develop this widget, will you buy it? I think what you need to do is we're trying this thing and co-design with your uh, with your um, your guests, your visitors, whatever you want to call them, um, and sort of. Test things out, which is less scary than let's spend a million bucks on this new program and see what happens when we're done. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, uh, and also there's a whole, a guy named Hippol from MIT wrote a book called Lead User Design. I think that's what it's called, or Dem- Democratic Innovation. And get your, get your lead users, get your regular, get your regular, you know, members and bring them in and say, so what are we going to do differently? Let them, because they're just, Total users of your experience. So I think that you need to p- learn about what they do in the innovation world and incorporate it into the kind of work that you're doing, and not be scared. And and I will say, I you ask me if they're kicking and screaming, whatever, you know, I kind of don't want to take on a client where the CEO is not interested in doing things differently or the board. If you got that, I'll go find another client. Quite frankly, I I, I need to find people who it, there's a more than a glimmer of we need to do something differently or else we're going to be in big trouble. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant to join people who don't really care about change. Um, they've got it. They can, cause they'll, all they'll do is they'll stop you in their tracks down the road. Um,
2: That's very interesting. You know, the, the, uh, the point you made about engaging your inner circle. Uh, which for museums are their are their members, uh people who have already stated that they're going to be with you through thick and thin. You know they're mm-hmm. they're going to be coming back and, and involving them in some special uh activities. Special for them, you're asking them their thoughts and opinions. Uh it seems that they are a group that sometimes museums overlook. Uh, you know, members seem to be that that core group that you have to to uh, do things for, but they're sort of taken for granted, aren't they?
3: They are. And for example, donor. Let's say, I mean, the art museum is very. They have more individual donors, I think, than corporate donors. And, you know, why don't you spend a day following or working with your biggest donor and see what they see in these paintings? Why are they so enamored by it? Why are they so excited about it? What inspired them as a child to really love museums? But I think you got to have to think about, you know, how to work. I mean, corporations are a cor- prime example. I mean, when you're in the science business, sometimes you immerse yourself with your client. Here's a good example. I did a project, this is a for-profit museum for Ford Motor Company, where I basically immersed myself in design labs, the car design lab, and the the lab where they actually designed the difference between a Lincoln, a a Lincoln Continental door and a Ford Focus door. And by hanging out with those people who were embedded in all this, so if you're an art museum, Hang out with the artists and understand how they do their artwork so you can take the authentic experience of them and drop it in. So we just – we did this really cool design studio, which we basically followed a group of car designers. I think it was on the, the Ford Taurus maybe or something else like that. And we brought it – we did a story about it. Like what do they do? How do they make decisions? And it was just so intriguing. Um, authenticity is extremely important. And I think that um, uh, understanding that from a user or a guest standpoint is, is, is critical. That makes museums different than sort of entertainment centers because you really want to tell real stories with real people who kind of inspire you and who understand that story.
2: Oh, Stephen, I, I'm so glad that, that you talked about that, that, uh, that sense of authenticity. and I think that for our listeners who got their back up when Stephen uh, uh, related. or or compared museums to shopping malls. The point is that they're not shopping malls uh, because they do have this this authenticity. Um, I suppose shopping malls have their own authenticity in that they're selling us shoes and they're not making any apologies for that. And so museums need to stop apologizing for their authentic stories uh, as well.
3: Well, Wait, wait, can can I just want to yes, my comparison to shopping malls, it's not necessarily about the experience. It's about the money and the time. That's an asset that families have. And so on a Saturday, they have time to kill or whatever, and they have money in their pocket. So I'd rather than take their 50 bucks and their three hours and come to a museum. That's what I meant by it. not by the, the museum should be like a shopping mall, but it's you're competing against um, their time and money. They've got money in their pocket. They've got time. And that's what it is. How do you be engaging enough so when they make that decision, because if you don't do it that way, you're only going to get the people who listen to NPR and PBS because they're that's what they usually do. I mean, I, I remember a story um, one of my staff who was African American in Detroit um, uh, and at the at the at Spirit of Ford, I said, "Why do we have not a diverse audience here?" And he said to me, well, my friends, my family, everybody I know on Saturday morning, they're not thinking about going to a museum. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you get them to think about coming to a museum? And that's what I mean by that competition. And, and diversity is a really key issue because a well-educated white family from suburbia who's got a lot of money on a Saturday, their parents are saying, how can we enrich our kids' lives? Um, and, and that's a different conversation than, than, you know, how are we going to spend our time today?
2: Thank you, Stephen, for making that, that clarification. I think that's very important. I think that often gets lost in our conversation, so I'm really glad that, that we uh, uh, talked a little bit more about that. Stephen, we've got about um, uh, five minutes left. I know that's unfair, uh, but I do want to ask you a little bit uh, to share with us what you are doing for uh, Olin College in really starting at the ground up and helping groups, uh, in this case engineers at the very beginning, uh, become uh, changing the way they think about doing their business?
3: So 12 years ago, a foundation called the Olin Foundation that was funding engineering schools around the country um, were a little tired of writing big checks and having buildings with their name on it around the country. So they took about $450 million, they put it in an account, and they turned to a group of people. Many of them were MIT professors and said, how do we reinvent engineering education? And so the journey has moved from 12 years ago to today where not only are they number four in the rankings, um, but they're they're really graduating um, a different kind of engineer and um, they um, are training colleges all over the world on how to be more innovative. And there's really no ma- – for those of us in informal education, there's really no magic to it. Basically, what they do differently is it's a lot of group work. It's a lot about building on intrinsic motivation and what students care about. It's a lot about collaboration. It's not about grades, even though they do have grades. It is about physical stuff. It's about making things. It's about trying things out. It's about failure. It's about all those things that sort of make inventors actually different from engineers. Now, what's interesting about it is MIT will pump out graduates who will graduate people who are more skilled in the technology um and, and olin is putting up kids who are more students graduates who are more good problem solvers so google um and um and uh, microsoft are standing in line to to grab these students why because even though they're not as technically astute as some of the mit folks what they've learned is how to work in teams how to brainstorm how to solve problems and they're much better down the road because they are better learners so in terms of that's what they're doing differently, and it's it's for those of us in the camp. You know, I grew up in summer camp, and in the muse- in the interactive museum world, is that engagement is critical. So, if in most traditional engineering schools, and maybe that's the between a traditional museum and an interactive museum. A traditional engineering school is basically focusing on the skills, the knowledge, the textbooks, and at Olin, they're talking about. By the way, you've got end users who're going to use your product. Learn a lot about them first. And then learn the technology that will lead you to developing things that they want to use, which is a great metaphor for the museum industry. Let's understand about people who engage with us in our museums and then design and get the knowledge we need to deliver to that instead of being so enamored by the knowledge that we have and say everybody needs this information. And and it's like with that with that approach, you'll be sitting there in empty buildings in the future. And I think the one thing we didn't talk about at all, which I'll say very briefly, is the use of technology. We can't be enamored by technology. It's not as authentic. We need to use technology to inspire and engage. And the simple version of that is when I was at Liberty, we developed this thing, and I actually continued it in Cleveland, is to show live, and I mean live, heart surgery. So students can see a real surgeon inside someone's body cavity, showing them how they do it. That's better than teaching them what surgery is about. Um, and that's where that authenticity and engagement that's a good use of technology because they're sitting there in the museum or in their classroom we have to make it authentic and engaging and technology has to do that and not just be the shiny penny that everybody has to do because people need it so I, it's true. think about that
2: oh steven you never uh you never disappoint uh you are always listening to you for me is always inspirational and uh i know a- Will continue to be. I personally am going to continue uh, watching your work at Olin College uh, and wish I could hire one of those engineers um, to work with me. Uh, this has been a wonderfully important uh, uh, discussion today for our museum profession. Uh, I hope uh, you continue to follow Stephen and his journey. Remember, you can always reach him at sbrand at enterprisefactory.com. Uh, you can listen to this show. Again, you can download uh, on mp3 uh, at uh, Carolbossertservices.com as well as the Voice America website uh, and uh, do come back next week and listen to more of our discussions of the museum life. This is Carol Bossert and uh, have a great day.
1: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to?